As we start our message today, I want you to try and think of someone who you would say is the least likely person to become a Jesus follower. So it could be someone from history. You might start by thinking about someone like Hitler, for example. Say there is really no chance that someone like him would ever uh, decide to follow Jesus. It could be someone who is a current leader. You might think of someone, for example, who is the leader of ISIS right now or someone like Vladimir Putin, and you would say, no matter what happened, I can't imagine a scenario where that person would decide to follow Jesus. It could be someone that you know. It could be a family member or a friend, someone who you know has some significant baggage about Christianity, and you would say there is no chance that that person ever would become a follower of Jesus. So hopefully you've got someone, and now I want you to think about all of the hurdles that that person would have to jump over in order for them to get to a place where they would actually make a decision to follow Jesus. Especially if it was someone who had done a lot of damage or hurt a lot of people. Again, think of someone like Hitler or someone who's a terrorist. Imagine all the stuff that they would have to let go of, all of the damage that they'd done to people. Think about all of the changes in thoughts that they would have to have, all of the ways that they'd have to reorient their whole worldview in order for them to say, I'm going to follow Jesus instead. Today we're going to have a look at the conversion of this man named Saul. And it's really, really important for us to recognise that Paul, uh, Saul would absolutely fit into that category of being someone who was the least likely person in the history of the world to convert to follow Jesus. From where Saul was and all of what he was about, to him becoming Paul as the person who really was the one who opened up the early church and allowed people to discover Jesus is one of the most miraculous transformations in the whole history of the world. And we're very, very grateful that it happened because our experience of church, our understanding of all that Jesus has done for us would not be the same if it wasn't for this one key figure. We're looking at his story today as another example of something that happens on the road. We're doing this series that's called Road Trip, where we're walking through a number of stories that happen on the road where people interact with Jesus. And we're doing that as a way of getting ourselves ready for Easter during this season of Lent, a time of us being able to say, how are we journeying with Jesus? What are the experiences that we're having with Jesus? And what does transformation look like for us? We want to make sure that by the time we get to Easter weekend, we're really well prepared, that we're building a sense of expectation about what it means for us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but also to celebrate his victory on Easter Sunday. So a quick recap of the story so far, uh, leading up to where we're at in our reading today. At the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus has died on the cross and then he's come back to life three days later. He has then spent some time with his disciples, spent time helping them to understand that, yes, he is genuinely back, he is alive, he is real, and uh, no doubt spent some time helping them to get their heads around the implications of all that's just gone on. He spends 40 days with them, and then at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read that Jesus ascends to heaven. And his disciples are then gathered together, uh, spending time kind of processing through, okay, now what? What do we do now? Now, again, remember, this is 40 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's only a month and a half, really, since all of those events have unfolded. 
The Jewish leaders are no less passionate about stamping out this revolution around Jesus, and the Romans are also no less passionate about stamping this out whatsoever. And so there would have been a fair sense of fear that all of the disciples would have been feeling in this moment as they think about, what do we do now? Jesus has come back, he's alive, he's given us this responsibility to go and tell people about him, but what does that actually look like? And so while they're gathered together, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes on them in a really, really powerful way, and all of a sudden, a bunch of them are able to speak in other languages. And so they spill out onto the street, and all these people are suddenly able to hear the message of Jesus in their own language. It's really, really remarkable. Peter then stands up and gives this awesome speech to help people understand what's gone on and the implications of that. And thousands, literally thousands of people make a decision to say, we're in. We want to follow this guy Jesus as well. As we move then into Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we read these beautiful snapshots of what the early church looked like. This community of people who were journeying together, who were growing together, who were sharing everything that they had, and who were living out of an understanding about what it meant to follow Jesus. And because of that, even more people are following Jesus and saying, we want to be a part of this too. The church is then starting to work out how they get organised. So how do we make sure that we're doing the stuff that we want to do? How do we make sure that people are being cared for? Uh, But at the same time, how do we make sure that we're also freed up to go and keep telling people about Jesus? And in the midst of all of that, there's this massive persecution that's happening. People are getting arrested, people are getting beaten up, they're getting abused. The Jewish leaders continue to not be happy about this. It's like this Jesus guy was supposed to be dead. Now you're saying that he's alive and there's all these rumours about that. And now all these people, and now more people are joining them. This is not getting better. It's getting worse. So they're getting more and more frustrated. The Romans are getting frustrated because there's all these riots that are breaking out all over the place because of the tensions that are there. And so there's all this persecution that's happening. Peter and John, as two key leaders in the early church, are some of the ones who get the biggest amount of persecution. But another key leader in the early church, a guy named Stephen, is actually stoned to death because he refuses to give up his belief in Jesus. And he says, no, I am going to follow Jesus. He is who he says he is, and he's killed for it. That means even more persecution breaks out over the events that have happened there. And so that sends people scattered out of Jerusalem. Up until this point, they've all kind of been hanging out together in Jerusalem, but now they scatter to all of the cities all around the place. And a key figure in all of this persecution is this guy named Saul. We know from other places in scripture that Saul was someone who was brought up as a Jewish person. He was a very devout Jew. He was trained as a Pharisee and he followed the letter of the law, which we talked about last week. He was one of these guys who was just adamant. This is what it says. This is what we have to do. End of story. He knew it inside and out. So he saw these Jesus followers as imposters as people who were causing all sorts of trouble, as people who were jeopardising people having a healthy relationship with God. And so he was done with it. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we read that Saul tried to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out the believers, both men and women, and threw them into jail. He was consumed with stamping out this revolution that was centred around this guy named Jesus He was determined to wipe it out, to destroy the church, to get rid of it once and and for all. And so he goes around from house to house, dragging people out into the streets and throwing them into jail. And there's a couple of things that are really good reminders for us about what the early church looked like as we get into our passage today. First of all, the early church was actually a house church movement. 
The early church didn't get together like we do in buildings and meet in the way that we do. They got together in homes and they spent time, as we've already said, eating together, celebrating together, learning together in these networks of house churches that were primarily connected in Jerusalem and then into the wider cities around them as they went. And so Paul was probably going into some people's individual homes and dragging them out on the streets. But it's fair to think he was probably going into some of these house church meetings as well, catching people, spending time focusing on Jesus and dragging them out into the streets and having them arrested. The other thing that we note here is that Saul was dragging out and arresting men and women, not just men. And this is an important reminder that women were a part of the early church in a significant way from the very, very beginning. We know that from other places as well, but the fact that Paul isn't just going and arresting the men that are a part of these house churches is a sign of the influence that the women were having right from day one. It was one of the big reasons that the Jewish leaders, and the Romans as well, had so many issues with this thing called the church, because they were elevating women to a status that was very, very countercultural, and they really didn't like that very much. And so Paul, Saul is going in, and he's grabbing women and men and throwing them all into jail. So we fast forward then to just after Stephen's death and the scattering of the church and we pick it up at the start of Acts chapter 9 in verse 1. In the meantime, Saul kept up his violent threats of murder against the followers of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he should find there any followers of the way of the Lord, he'd be able to arrest them, both men and women, and bring them back to Jerusalem. So we can assume that Saul has probably rounded up as many people as he could find in Jerusalem. Again, they've scattered, so there's probably not that many of them left. But now he's on his way to Damascus to go and find them and round all of them up and send them to prison as well. And so we've got this wording that Saul kept up his violent threats. And other translations actually say that Saul breathed violent threats against people, which in its original context actually meant that the threats that he was focused on were the air that he breathed. This was his all-consuming focus. It was all that he could think about. He was that frustrated about what was going on. It was his unwavering mission to stamp it out. And so he asked for these letters to be able to go into the synagogues, which are kind of public meeting spaces in other cities, and to find everyone who was following Jesus or people who were rumoured to be able to follow Jesus. We've got this term in terms of how they're referred to as the followers of the way. And that's one of the earliest phrases that was used about these groups of people who were following Jesus. The word Christian didn't actually come into being until well after the New Testament had finished being written. And so this was a key way that people talked about these people who were following Jesus, followers of the way, which is really, really beautiful language. Partly comes because we heard Jesus talk about being the way, the truth, and the life, and so there's an understanding of that. But there's also a recognition that Jesus is the way for us to have a relationship with God, an understanding that Jesus is the way for us to be able to experience life in all of its fullness, that Jesus is the way for us to live the way that we were created to live. And so these people were called followers of the way of Jesus, people who were following him. And again, we've got men and women highlighted. And so Saul's plan was to come in and to arrest all of these followers of the way of Jesus, throw them into Jerusalem, uh, throw them into jail in Jerusalem, and then we can assume go into other cities and do the same thing. However, 
He's slightly interrupted as his plan unfolds. In verse 3, as Saul was coming near the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from the sky flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I want you to put yourself into Saul's shoes at this point and try and imagine what it must have been like for him. We're told later that this all unfolds at noon. So it's the middle of the day and this massive bright light that's even brighter than the sun flashes all around you and knocks you down and makes you fall to the ground. You're blinded, you can't see, you don't know what's going on and then all of a sudden you hear this voice speaking to you. Why do you persecute me? What would you be thinking at this point? As you're lying there on the ground, kind of cowering, shielding your eyes from this bright light, what would you be thinking at this point? Well, Saul's clearly confused because he says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And there's different interpretations of what he's saying here. Some people would say that he's using the word Lord just as a term of respect. So effectively saying, who are you, sir, would be another way of us being able to interpret it. But there are others who would say that he instantly recognised this as the voice of God. And so he is saying, who are you, Lord, in terms of saying, who are you, God? Who are you that is speaking to me? Either way, it's clear that he doesn't really understand what's going on. Who is this person that brings a blinding light in the middle of the day and speaks to him in this clear voice? Well, it only gets more confusing and more shocking for him. The voice responds, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. But get up and go into the city where you will be told what you must do. Now again, put yourself into Saul's shoes at this point. What on earth is going on? The voice that you hear says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. That's absolutely impossible because Jesus is dead. He's supposed to be dead. He's dead. He can't speak if he's dead. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's dead. Isn't he? How can he be speaking to me if he's dead? This time, ah, all right, ah, I don't know what's going on. Your mind would start to race at a million miles an hour. What? Have I been wrong about this? Have I made a mistake? Is, is Jesus alive? I heard those rumors. But no, no, no. Jesus is absolutely dead. There's no question he's dead. This can't be going on. But he makes this really, really profound statement. You are persecuting me. All of this persecuting that you're doing, all of this attacking and arresting of people around the place, it's not just them that you're arresting and persecuting. It's actually me that you're attacking when you're doing all of that. Would have confused you even more. No, 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 I'm attacking this riffraff that's all following these rumours that can't be true about what's going on around the place. Aren't I? Again, your mind would just be spinning as all of this goes on. And the words that Jesus speaks here are a really, really great reminder to us that he is never off to the side, just watching, seeing how things play out, wondering how things are going to end. When we struggle as people who follow Jesus, Jesus himself struggles. When we're persecuted, he's persecuted. When we're in pain, Jesus himself is in pain. He doesn't stand off to the side. He's with us and knows exactly how we feel every single moment. And so Jesus says, so get up and go into the city. So in verse 7, the men who were traveling with Saul had stopped shockingly, not saying a word. They heard the voice, but they couldn't see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, but he could not see a thing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. The people who were with Saul weren't saying a word. You can understand that as they were literally speechless. They were just blown away. What on earth is going on? I have no words to be able to speak about what is happening. I don't understand it. And look at the position that Saul now finds himself in. Blind and completely dependent on others. Being led by the hand into this city that he was going to go in and tip upside down and instead he has to have others guide him as he goes in there. And then in verse 9, for three days he wasn't able to see and during that time he didn't eat or drink anything. It's completely lost, completely blind, completely in darkness, not even able to eat or drink because of everything that he's working through. And again, imagine what it must have been like for Saul. Everything that your whole life has been about has now been tipped upside down and thrown out. You have to rethink the very core of who you are. You have to think through all the implications of what you're now starting to grasp. And you have to come to grips with everything that you've done. All of these people who you've hurt, and all of it because you were wrong. Imagine how that must feel. This is one of those times when we really wish that we could have been there. Wouldn't it have been awesome to be in that room with Saul and Jesus for those three days? To think about the questions that Saul must have had. To think about the answers that Jesus must have had. To listen in to the words that Jesus must have spoken. To be able to pour his love out and his forgiveness out and his acceptance out on this man's soul. So much so that he's in a place where he's willing to change the whole trajectory of his life. Just think about what those three days must have been like for him. Well, from here, God sends this man named Ananias to go and meet with Saul, which is no small ask. Again, put yourself into the shoes of this man instead. And imagine how you would have felt if you were Ananias. You hear God say to you, I want you to go to that house over there because Saul's over there and I want you to talk to him about me. What? (laughs) Hold on a minute. Isn't Saul the guy who was coming here to attack us and to throw us in jail? Isn't Saul the one who's been killing people? You want me to go and meet with him? Uh, I don't think so. But Ananias does. He hears God's voice and he responds to that in obedience. He meets with Saul. He prays for Saul. He heals Saul's sight, and then he ends up baptizing Saul. And this is a great reminder to us that Jesus could have completed Saul's transformation in an instant. Jesus could have transformed Saul right there on the road when he was cowering from the bright light, or at any point during those three days that they spent together. And yet he waits until this man Ananias can be a part of this transformation process. And that is a regular part of how God works. For some strange reason, God doesn't just show up and show his power and show who he is because he could do that and transform the world in an instant. For some reason, God chooses to use us. As broken as we are, as flawed as we are, as many mistakes as we make, God chooses to use us to partner in the transformation that he does in the lives of people around us. So Saul then goes on to have his name changed to Paul 
And he's the one who spreads the message about Jesus far and wide. It's not the 12 disciples who do this. It's not the other people who had been with Jesus for three years. It's this man, Saul, who is the one who becomes the first missionary who goes out and tells people over and over about Jesus. And even though Saul was, in reality, the least likely candidate to become someone who would follow Jesus, he was also actually the perfect candidate to be the one who would spark the early church. Someone who did grow up knowing the law inside and out. Someone who was living by the letter of the law. And for him to set that aside and focus on the spirit of the law instead and to bring some radical thinking into the early church and say, actually, you can let that stuff go. No one had more authority to do that than this man, Paul. He grew up with Jewish parents, but he lived in Tarsus, which was a Greek city. So he lived with both of these cultures. He studied under this man named Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest Jewish minds of his time. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on a fast track to becoming one of the most influential Jewish leaders of his time. He spoke Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, the three major languages of his time, and so he was able to engage with people wherever they were at. But in order for all of that to be able to be used by God, Paul had to let go of an awful lot. He had to completely change his way of thinking. He had to accept God's forgiveness for him. And he had to choose to become a follower of the way, a follower of this man, Jesus. And imagine what that must have been like in those first few weeks of this transformation. Imagine, first of all, what it must have been like for the Jewish leaders. Your number one guy, this guy named Saul, has changed teams. He swapped on you. (laughs) What's going on? This is the guy who was supposed to go and arrest them. He wasn't supposed to become one of them. What is happening here? But even more than that, imagine what it must have been like for the early church, for those first disciples, as this man Saul all of a sudden starts showing up, not to arrest you, but to be a part of the work that's going on. Imagine the work that they would have had to all do in their minds to accept him and say, no, he's legit. This isn't just a hoax. This isn't just a new strategy that he's got so he can find more of us. He's really been changed by Jesus. That's extraordinary. So as we begin to wrap up our message today and get ready to transition into a time of communion, one of the key things for us to recognise through this story of Saul is that there is nothing that any of us have done that means that God can't use us. I know most of you fairly well, and I can confidently say no one in this room has done anything that's even slightly close to the things that Saul did. I think I can say that with a fair bit of confidence. Some of you may have some skeletons in the closet I'm not aware of, but even then I would say you don't even come close to what this man Saul has done. Transformation is available to every single one of us. Sometimes we do get knocked down. Sometimes we feel like we're falling down on the ground and everything's falling apart because of health, because of finances, because of relationships. Jesus can take all of that and he can transform it in our lives. Sometimes we can feel lost. We can feel blind. We can be unsure about what the way is ahead. Jesus wants to meet us there and take that lostness and transform it in our lives. Sometimes we can struggle with our past. We can struggle with mistakes that we've made or people that we've hurt. Jesus can take that 
and he can transform it and use it for his purpose. So as we get ready to move into communion and as we kind of move into this week, this is a question that I'd love us to spend some time reflecting on. Is there anything that's stopping me from experiencing God's transformation in my life? If it's true that that transformation is available to every single one of us, then is there anything that I'm aware of that's getting in the way of that? Now, I want to say something very carefully before we get into unpacking what that question looks like. This doesn't mean we have to do that in order for Jesus to accept us. Saul doesn't get his life together and then Jesus comes and meets him and transforms him. Jesus comes and meets Saul as he's on the way to go and persecute the church in Damascus. Jesus comes and meets every single one of us where we're at right now today. Jesus loves every single one of us as we are right now today. But in order for us to be able to move forward, like Saul, most of us have things in our lives that we need to let go of so that we can fully experience the transformation that God wants to be able to do in our lives. For some of us, it is our past. And there's some things in that that we have to let go of. There are some mistakes that we've made, some people that we've hurt, that we need to be able to surrender over to Jesus and to accept his forgiveness so that we can move forward. In the same way that Saul needed to accept that forgiveness for all the things he'd done, some of us need to be in a position where we say, Jesus, this is hard, but I give it over to you and I accept your forgiveness. For some of us, it might be thought patterns that we've got, misunderstandings that we have or ways that we look at the world. We need to surrender all of that to Jesus and say, help me see things the way that you want me to be able to see. For some of us, it might be our passion to change other people. Like Saul, maybe we're in a place where we want to fix everyone else. We want to stamp out all the stuff that doesn't fully align with how we see the world and the way that we think. God wants us to be able to stop and to be able to see people the way that he sees them, with eyes of love and grace and forgiveness, and to not be in a position where we think we have to change everyone on his behalf. For all of us, there are continually things that we need to surrender to God, to hand back over to him and say, I know this isn't your best, and so I give it to you. And I trust that as I do that, you're going to bring even more transformation in my life. You're going to help me see Jesus even more clearly. And in doing so, you're going to let me be a part of the work that you're doing in the world around us. So I'm going to give us a moment before we go into communion to just be able to pause and to reflect on that. And if there's anything inside of you that's just kind of tugging at you, something where you would say, yeah, I can feel like that is the thing I need to let go of, I encourage you to just jot that down and to take some time this week to think about what it looks like, to pray about that, to hand that over to God and say, God, what do you want to do with this thing that has been a part of my life for a short amount of time or a long amount of time? So I'll give us some time in the silence and then I'll pray and we'll move into communion. Jesus, thank you that you meet us where we're at. 
Each one of us are walking all sorts of different roads as we enter into and continue on this season called Lent. Thank you that all of us don't have to get ourselves together so that we can hope that if we finally get to meet you, we'll be in a place where you might possibly accept us. Thank you that you choose to come and meet us right where we're at, right in this moment, right now, and that you love us, you embrace us, you wrap your arms around us. You show us that you have done everything necessary for us to have a full and complete relationship with you and with your heavenly Father. There's nothing that we have to do in order to earn any of that. It's all been done for us. And there's nothing that we've done in our whole lives that can get in the way of that love that you've got for us. All of it has been forgiven because of your work on the cross in your victory, in your resurrection. And so we thank you that because of that we can come to you in confidence and we can say, Jesus, we open ourselves up to whatever it is that you want to say to us. We open ourselves up to those places where we know that we're not living out your best, those places where we know that we're not letting go of past hurts, those places where we know that we're trying to be the people who are in control, those places where we know that our thoughts aren't aligned with your thoughts, that we don't see the world the way that you do, that we don't see other people the way that you do. And we thank you that you want to gently but carefully take those things from us and to heal us from them, to restore us to being able to see the way that you want us to be able to see, to transform our lives so that we can be the people who follow you passionately and excitedly, understanding the freedom that we've been given and the opportunity that you give us to be partners with you in the transformation that you're doing in the lives of the people that we get to interact with this week. So we pray that as we move into a time of communion, we'll be reminded again that you're here with us and that as we then move into this week, that you go with us, that there isn't a moment when you're distracted or where you don't think about us. You meet us where we're at, you journey with us and you want to continue to transform us. In your name we pray. Amen. I'll hand over to Roger and uh, those who are helping with communion can come forward.